Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. The message is entitled, The Blessing of a Living Example. We have been looking at the spiritual blessings that are ours and through the person of Jesus Christ to further describe the wealth of the believer from verse 7 down to 12. As I stated, the Trinity is involved in the process of salvation. It is one long sentence from verse 3 to 14. The Father is indicated in 3 to 6. The Son follows 7 to 12. And the Holy Spirit is last in verses 13 and 14. Each is given praise for salvation. The first part of 6, verse 12, and the last part of 14. Now, we looked at the first blessing associated with Jesus revealing the doctrine of redemption in verse 7 and 8, characterized by the proclamation of redemption, the explanation about redemption, and the illumination after redemption in verse 8. The second blessing associated with Jesus by the doctrine of redemption focused on the clarity of the revelation in verse 9 to 10. First, we saw the mode of the divine revelation, then the manner of the divine revelation, and then the measure of the divine revelation. Now, we come to the third and last blessing associated with Jesus by the doctrine of redemption, in that our lives can bring Him praise. And it's characterized by three things. Let me read here verse 11 and 12. In Him... Also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. And so the third blessing associated with Jesus here in the doctrine of redemption is that our lives can be and bring praise to him and is characterized by the following. First, the sin... The single preparation, right? The first part of 11. Second, you have the sovereign determination, the remainder of 11. And third, you have the soul expectation in verse 12. It begins with the single preparation. Notice it is God who does all the work throughout, all the time. And we can't understand how God would direct and guide and we would yield and it works out. You have to be careful as you go through passages like this that you don't make man a robot. And you almost teach Greek determinism. That no matter what happens, God's will is going to be done. And you exclude all free will. We've gone through this a lot. Now notice... Verse 11, there at the beginning, the Apostle Paul continues to identify the person of Jesus as the unique connection for the spiritual blessing of the believer. Two words, in him. The preposition in is the word en in the Greek. It declares the position of the believer intimately united with Jesus Christ. There's the connection. The union makes us one with Jesus, he being the only source of our dependency for all things in life. And if you've walked with God for any length of time, you know that as long as you abide and you walk and you're yielding, you're obedient, things are fine. But the minute you get self-complacent, self-dependent, and haughty, you're going to eat some crow. So carry a salt shaker. The preposition in 
appears 116 to 120 times in this letter. The various combinations of the names and titles and pronouns of Jesus appear 12 times in the first 14 verses. The preposition N makes all other differences irrelevant, be they racial, cultural, gender, denominational, having broken down the middle wall of separation or partition, Ephesians 2.14 tells us. The differences that are in this auditorium are incredible, but they're all irrelevant because we're one in Christ. That's what we're to agree 100% on, the scriptures about Christ. Notice the personal pronoun him refers to no one but Jesus. Jesus, the God-man, indicated by his human name, Jesus. His divine title, Christ. We've seen all this before. It's two times in verse 1. Jesus is Lord, kurios, master over the believer by willful submission, Ephesians 1, 3. A Lord, in this case, being Jesus, doesn't force you to bow. But you can't bow. The Father chooses us in Him and adopts us by Jesus. He's told us in verse 1 4, in chapter 1 4 and 1 5. Jesus made us all members of the household of, of God. He will tell us in chapter 2, verse 19. Throughout the epistle, there are synonymous phrases stated in Christ, in Him, in whom, through Him. And by him, all referring to Jesus Christ. It's always amazing to me that people will say, well, we're in the Bible to say that Jesus is the only way. Are you kidding me? They say we're too dogmatic, too exclusive. Hmm. In him we have boldness and access with confidence through faith. Chapter 3, verse 12 says, it's him alone. Now notice the Apostle Paul identified the next spiritual blessing of the believer. Listen carefully. Also we have obtained an inheritance. The word also has the idea of an ongoing list of the blessings in Christ Jesus that he is naming off here. Paul just told them Jesus made known to them the mystery of his will. Through the gospel, that Jew and Gentile would be one in Christ in verse 10. Paul also told them, Jesus made known through the gospel that one day he will bring the age of grace to a close and gather all things in heaven and earth. Also in verse 10. The usual interpretation of this verse at the, the first part here of is that of an inheritance that God has bequeathed to us as believers because the word is translated like that. But this is not what the text is teaching in its context. The fact that God has given us an inheritance is biblical, but it will be dealt with in verse 14. Paul says about our inheritance that we are heirs of God and joiners with Jesus Christ in Romans eight seventeen. 
Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 3-5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us, again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So, those two passages alone, we have an inheritance. We will deal with it later. But, there is also the fact that it's taught in the Scriptures that we are the heritage of God. Not only that we have an inheritance that will be dealt with in verse 14, but we are a heritage of God. He says this in chapter 1, verse 18. He says that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of His calling, that you are, um, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. We are the inheritance of God. And God hasn't given us an inheritance. Both doctrines are are biblical, but in this context, he has made us his own. We he belongs. Um, uh, we belong to him um, for all eternity. But our text here is not referring to either one of these. The text here in context is speaking about each of us being assigned a part in connection with him, Jesus Christ. The phrase we have obtained, an inheritance, is one word, clerical. It means to cast lots or a portion. That's what the word means. The word is used in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Greek um, translation of the Hebrew writings. Whenever you read critical commentaries, you see the Roman letter, uh, capital LXX, that's 50, 10, 10, 70, Septuagint, okay? And it's used for the lots of the land that was ascribed to the tribes of Israel in the book of Numbers 26, 55, and 56. They cast lots to see who got what land. That's the word that is used. This is the only time this word appears in the New Testament. But it's translated inheritance. The believer has been assigned a lot is what he's saying, or a portion in connection with Jesus Christ under his administration. The verb clero again is an indicative eris passive in the plural. Paul includes himself, we. He, like every other Christian, has been ascribed a portion or a lot in the realm of God's program and administration. Implying that God gave that lot in the past by grace through faith. Now the word clero is the root word for the word heir and inheritance. But the verb form in this particular case does not mean inheritance nor heir. And Lansky the Greek scholar makes this very, very clear. Nor does it communicate any such idea, he says. So there's a portion that God has allotted to each of us. That which we need. So that His will, as we're going to see, gets worked out in our lives. We might understand the lot 
appointed to each of us as a well-equipped and trained baseball team or basketball team. Each player is assigned to their best suited position for victory. There's no envy, there's no striving, but there's a coordinated, beautiful combination and working together to see one incredible oil machine. This is God's doing. That's how He does it. Every week I'm amazed as God does the work for 30-some years here. How God brings people and they get saved and they get grounded and they get involved and God calls and God gives gifts as we'll see and God gives anointing and callings and, and people step out and, and, and the church runs like an oil machine as God is the one who does all this using people. I, I don't do it. I, I don't ask you to serve. I don't, you know. We just pray that God would touch your heart and God would direct and guide you and you would respond to the teaching of God's word and God puts it together. Now this begins with regeneration resulting in salvation by hearing and believing the gospel. Acknowledging one's sins to God and confessing one's sins to God and abandoning one's sins by God. There's no way you can abandon your sin in yourself. Paul puts it this way in Romans 10, 13 through 15. For whatever or whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they, be, they call on him who they have not believed? And how shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tithings of good things. The greatest gift that we can give to anybody is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the greatest thing we can give. Because it will open the door for God to be able to deal with their hearts. To bring illumination and conviction that they might see who they really are and where they're at in relationship to God. This then moves on to sanctification through studying the Word of God once you're born again. You and I grow, develop, and mature in the knowledge of Christ and become more like Christ. And you and I live in a world that is uh, not really very open to Christ, particularly today. We're becoming more, um, not only anti-Christian, but anti-Christ. You can speak about anybody, Buddha, Allah, your pet rock. But don't mention the name of Jesus. This is from the White House on down. Our Congress. Our educators. The world is not impressed with us, trust me. Nor do they want any part of God. But equally, as you're born again and you began to grow and be sanctified, the world becomes more tasteless the longer you're around if you're growing. 
doesn't mean you're better than anybody else, but you just, it's just not there. The desire is not there. The longer you walk with God and the more you grow in the grace of God and the Word of God, the more obvious your own faults, your own failures, the atrocities of sin and all that, it's there. You can't get away from it. You and I are trusting the word, prayer, and the filling of the Holy Spirit to enable us to be victorious in Christ Jesus. Never on our own behalf, by our own doing, but by God. Second Peter 1, 2-4 says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, as His divine power has given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which has been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partaker of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And the word lust there doesn't mean just exclusively sexual. It's talking about strong desire for the corruption of the world, whatever it may be. Those things that would take me from God, those things that would want to take the place of God, those things that would make me deaf to God, those things that would make me unfaithful to God, any of those things. So the single preparation needed has been allotted. No one can ever say, I cannot do it. God didn't equip me. I, I, I wish I could be like you. Are you a Christian? Are you born again? Then God has prepared you with the allotment necessary for His administration. Absolutely true. Notice secondly, comes the sovereign determination the last half of 11 there. The Apostle Paul declared the lot or portion allotted to the believer as being predestined. Being predestined according to the purpose of Him. Again, Christ. The Greek scholar Lenski says the verb is to be construed with the participle. We have been assigned a lot as having been predestined. This looks back to having predestined us as adopted sons, according to the good pleasure of His will in verse 5. This verse focuses on the lot or the portion predestined according to the purpose of Him being advanced to the administration of Christ and all things under heaven and earth will, with the purpose that is at the end of verse 12 that we'll see. What is it? To be the praise of His glory. God is working in you and in me in this portion that whatever it is that He desires to do and wherever we're at, whatever goes on in our life, the end product will be that our lives will be a praise to His glory. Can't get simpler than that. As you know, the word predestined, as we have seen, means to predetermine, to determine a mark or to mark out beforehand. The word, again, is a participle nearest passive. The idea is to fix and establish in advance an eternity past, as we saw in verse 4 and 5. Now, 
A person described it as the placing of a fence around those people who accept their provision for salvation. In this context, it would be the allotted portion. The word appears in this form only six times, as we've mentioned, in the New Testament, and are the only passages that ever mention predestination. Yet not one of them, not one of them teaches that God preordained from ages past who should be saved to eternal life and who should be damned to eternity as taught by Calvinism. They are found in Acts 4.28, Romans 8.29 and 30, that's 3, 1 Corinthians 2.7, that's 4, Ephesians 1.5 is 6, and then you have 11. So, there you have your passages. They're found nowhere else. Instead, predestination is always in view of blessing or service, as in our text, the, the lot or the portion. That is the blessing of his purpose. Predestination does not deny human responsibility to respond to God's initiation through the gospel. And too many people, as soon as they see that word, they just say, can't do nothing about it. It's done. And automatically they think of salvation. But it's working, it's talking about service or blessing. So in our text here, the lot or portion is the blessing predestined in line with his purpose that does not exclude nor nullify human responsibility, but stands in complementary truths, works together again. So I reject John Calvin's teaching as well as Calvinists who deny the free will of man or human responsibility. Notice the source, motive, or intent behind the predestined lot or portion is according to his purpose of him. Jesus sovereignly, and here's again the sovereignty of God. Jesus sovereignly did this to bring to pass his purposes. The word purposes means a setting forth of a thing. Those things he intends and desires and wills to do. The word appears one other time in Ephesians, in chapter 3, verse 11, but let me read 10 with it. It says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, those are angelic beings. Here it is, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. As we pointed out in verse 5, the Apostle Paul revealed that the Bible never uses predestination in view of foreknowledge and election 
to or force individual salvation, but always to specific blessing for service that accompanies salvation. The only reason given is according to his foreknowledge in 1 Peter 1-2. The foreknowledge of God is based on his omniscience, all knowledge, not his decrees as Calvinists and Calvin teaches. On his foreknowledge, in harmony with, not the decrees. There's no, no, no word found. In the New Testament, the word decree is not found. Okay? Only once in the Old Testament. If you're with us in our Calvinistic teaching. For knowledge and predestination are not the same as Calvinism teaches. For knowledge is the source of the predestination. God predestines because he has foreknowledge. That's what 1 Peter 1 2 says. Okay? Calvinists make Predestination and foreknowledge synonymous. It's ridiculous. Calvinists say that God has foreknowledge because he decreed it. No. God has foreknowledge because he's all-knowing. If he's not all-knowing, then how can he decree something? It's bogus. Now, since we don't have either foreknowledge... Knowledge beforehand. That's what it means. It means nothing else. And we don't have omniscience. All knowledge. We cannot understand how they work together as complements. It's impossible. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. They're higher than the heavens. Isaiah 55, 89. Then notice the Apostle Paul. Declare that the purposes of Jesus are his perfect wisdom for the believer. Listen to his words. Who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The pronoun who refers again to Jesus, the one who works. The word works means to put forth power and display one's activities. The word appears two other times for God and once for Satan in Ephesians here. In one twenty, he says, which he works in Christ, when he, when he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. In chapter 2 verse 2, it's regarding Satan. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sense of disobedience. And then the third other time is in chapter 3, verse 20, and it's again in relationship to the Lord. In 3.20 he says, um, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or uh, think, according to the power that works in us. We get our word energy from it. This is the Greek word. The tense is the participle in the present active, continuously, ongoing, adurative, literally working. The Lord is working on our behalf, whether we, whether we realize it or not. He's always there to work. 
Now, he never forces us to yield, and this is the key. You know as a parent that when your child obeys and yields, he receives the greatest benefit. And your relationship is joyous. When it doesn't, it's like pulling teeth with pliers. Well, God is a perfect gentleman and he doesn't force us. When we yield, he's delighted. When we don't, doesn't please him. Now, he loves us either way. He just can't bestow us with the blessings of his love. Though he wants to. You as a parent want to bestow your children with the blessing of your love. But when they're not yielding or they're rebellious, if you bless them, you, you, you destroy them. The extent of the works Jesus brings to pass is qualified by the word all. It means every, any, and whatever. It appears ten times just in the first chapter. All, all, all. Fifty times in the six chapters. The context refers to the sovereignty of Jesus regarding those things that involve the believer's lot or portion according to his purposes. The article is present, indicating certainty. Jesus being God is a self-determinate, perfect being regarding his purposes. He is motivated, led, and acts out of his agape love and grace for the good of the believer's salvation. Every thought, every intent, every purpose, every inclination, every motivation that God has towards you and I is for our good. It's for the best result. Not one time does he have something that will bring evil or destruction. Now, he can give us a test, and if we fail it, there may be consequences. But he prepared us for the test. The failure of the test is not God's fault. It's my fault. If God gives me a test, that means he knows I can pass it. Whether I choose to pass it or not, that's my decision. I can't blame God. God is not hindered or obstructed by anything or anyone. But he is faithful. Now, the deliberation of his purpose regarding all things is described by the counsel of his will, notice. The word counsel and will are distinct. They're not synonymous here. They are complementary. One is the desire. The other is the deliberation or decision of purpose. The word will means what one wishes or has determined shall be done, expressing volition. You get up and you say, um, 
I'm going to go to the store. I'll be right back. Or I'm going to go out and shoot some hoops. There's a, a, a willful, volitional decision you make to do something. The will of Jesus in our text is all that he has in mind for the good of the believer, as I said. The will of Jesus is that which will flourish, enhance, and benefit a believer's life in Christ. The will of God in our text is what is always the best for us. This is his delight and his good pleasure. Philippians 1, 6, Paul says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Think back of some of the difficult times you've had in life. Or maybe you're going through one right now. If you walk with God for a long time, years, you know, it's like good athletes. Sometimes they have a slump. Sometimes you are just going through the fire. Sometimes you have a bad day. Sometimes you have a bad week. Sometimes you have a bad month. Sometimes you have a bad year. But here you sit, clothed and sane. God's brought you through. The word counsel means the final and concluding decision. It implies a deliberation based on consideration, understanding, and reason, resulting in the wisest choice by Jesus. Knowledge is just information. The assessing and Discerning of that information results in wisdom. It involves all his attributes that are the epitome of perfection. It declares that Jesus is for us and not against us. As you have coaches in baseball, basketball, whatever... There are some coaches that are just incredibly talented. They have that ability to motivate, to draw out of that athlete everything so they excel and become best. I had a coach, gymnastic coach, John Draghi. He was like that. And... um, He produced CIF championship teams for seven years. Then he went to Long Beach City College and then state champions. He just had that ability. But Jesus puts the best of coaches to shame because even the best coach is not perfect. He'll make bad decisions. He'll make bad calls. Jesus never does. He never fails. Peter declared this at Pentecost. In Acts 2. 
Him being delivered by the determinate purpose. Old King James, counsel. In foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Acts 2.23 The Father predestined the wisest way to reconcile man to himself by having a son, Jesus, atone for the sins of the world by dying in the place of every sinner. That was the epitome of wisdom that would reconcile man who is the epitome of sin to the God who is the epitome of holiness. The world looks upon it as foolishness. But to us it's the wisdom of God. <laughs> the Father and the Son have allotted to each of us our portion sovereignly as part of the church. Each of us are a different part of the body, a hand, a foot, an ear. Each of us have been given certain spiritual gifts to serve effectively. Each of us have been anointed for the involvement and exercise of our service by the Holy Spirit. And it has nothing to do with our talents or our education. They're supernatural gifts, supernatural anointment by God. I'm amazed at times at my wife, Trudy. She went to 12th grade. High school, that's it. I've got three masters. I never share that. But sometimes the stuff she shares and the stuff she brings, I go. And God says, you big dummy. See, it has nothing to do with your education. Nothing. That's why I tell you I have nothing against education. Get all you can. But when you get it, get over it. <laughs> Each of us is to be faithful in obeying our calling and our portion in life. Paul put it this way in Romans 12, 3 through 6. He says, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, sound, clear-minded. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith, for as many as, uh, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. You don't have to worry about what somebody else is doing. You don't have to worry about organizing at all. <laughs> you and I just have to obey the Lord in what he's called me and imparted to me. 
to be exercised. He takes care of how it all works out. The will of God is always found in the Word of God, where He reveals His absolute truth about Himself, Satan, man, sin, salvation, heaven, hell, and everything else is needed. He wills that we believe and understand the very first and important principle of the book of Genesis. The fall of Adam and its effect on the entire world. The sin entered in through one man and death through sin. So therefore, death passed through all men as well as sin. Romans 5.12 That basic truth will allow you to become the wisest person in the world because the world will make sense. You'll understand why people do evil things. you understand why the world is the way it is. He wills that we believe and understand the only way the Father has made for us to be forgiven for our sins and be reconciled through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because He was a God-man. A man would not do. He was a sinner. But God became man and therefore being sinless He took our place. And when we understand that, then it makes perfect sense why we can have fellowship with God. Why it is that He can accept us. And that's why Jesus said that He was the only way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. That's why Peter said that He's the only name given under heaven and earth whereby we must be saved in Acts 4, 12. That's why Paul says that he's the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus in 1 Timothy 2.5. Very, very specific. There's not much latitude on the way to the Father. He's the only one. The will of the Father in Jesus is twofold. The will of God that is absolutely and nothing can stop it or alter it is one, such as prophecy. They will come to pass. No one can stop it. The ten-nation confederacy will arise. The Antichrist will arise. The temple will be built. No one can stop it. But then you have the will of God that requires our submission and obedience by denying ourselves, picking up our cross daily and following Him. We are not forced by God on that. He wills that we yield so He can bring the blessing, the direction, the guidance, or the wisdom. But sometimes we don't. Paul gives us the formula in Romans 12, 1 and 2. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good, acceptable, here it is, the perfect will of God.
the final deliberation of the counsel of God is always the best for us. We are not omniscient, all-knowing. He is. We're not omnipresent. Everywhere at the same time, He is. We're not omnipotent, all-powerful. He is. We're not perfectly holy, just, good, kind, wise, and so on. He is. That's why His counsel, the determinant purpose and decision, the final tally, is the epitome of wisdom. Listen to Paul in Romans eleven thirty three through 35. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has uh, become His counselor? Has God ever called you up for advice? Hmm. Or who has first given to Him and that shall be repaid Him? God says, oh, thanks, man, I owe you. Really? For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. <laughs> the sovereign determination is in order that we be yielded to him. Notice third and last in verse 12. You have the soul expectation. Paul the Apostle identified the people who had received such an allotted blessing. That we who first trusted in Christ. The plural pronoun we has been interpreted differently. There are those who believe it refers simply to all believers. Jew and Gentile. There are others who believe it refers to Jews like Paul, who were Hebrews, who had come to believe in Jesus Christ, in contrast to you Gentiles in the next verse. So they see a contrast there. And that this we is of Hebrew Christians who first trusted in Christ. It seems Paul is referring to Jew and Gentile believers, because all believers have to be to the praise of the glory of Jesus at the end of verse 12. But it could be a contrast, and when he gets to verse um, 13, he, he may be implying that they also are to the praise, but doesn't mention it, and he does this a lot of times. So how do we know? We don't. So, you choose. I don't know. It could go either way. Now, notice the confirmation is found in the explanation about the we who first trusted in Christ. The phrase first is a compound word. The word pro, which means in front of or prior to or in advance. And the word Ellipso means to expect, to confide, or to anticipate. The phrase is 
a participle perfect active, literally, having first put hope in Jesus, indicating confident hope. Now, if you look and you take the interpretation that it speaks of Paul and Jews like him, then he's saying that we first as Jews trust as Christ and then you Gentiles follow. If he is indicating both Jew and Gentile, it could indicate that they had hope in Jesus first as Jews, but it wasn't the correct one, which they had a political agenda as the disciples did, thinking that Jesus was going to set up the kingdom, right? So, you can go either way. And the title Christ, as you know, is anointed Messiah from the Hebrew Scripture, the Mashiach. The one promised to Adam in Genesis 3.15. The title is on 46 times in Ephesians. 46 times Christ. His divinity. Jesus, his humanity. Then notice that Paul the Apostle indicated the ultimate purpose of those having received such an allotted blessing that he's been speaking about. Should be to the praise of his glory. This is what the blessing is. This is a doxology to Jesus. An exaltation and adoration of his ascribed beauty to his person. Just like the one to the Father in verse 6. Just like the one that will come for the Holy Spirit at the end of 14. The personal responsibility cannot be missed. In view that we have been prepared by having been given an allotted portion, in view that this allotted portion is the result according to the counsel of his will, in view that we have first trusted in Christ, we should be to the praise of his glory in the tense is the present active. It should be continuously. In view of all this, how often as you were raising your children, or maybe you are raising them now, you prepare them, you equip them, you give them everything that's necessary to do a task or to accomplish something, and and, and, and they... They mess up, whatever it is. And what do you say? How could you have done that? You had everything you needed. I think sometimes God says, how could you? We're just the same. The word praise means exaltation, approbation, and commendation. And the word that at the beginning of verse 12 indicates purpose. It's translated by the word for in some translations. The idea is that our lives as a result of being saved and prepared to bring praise to Jesus should do so. And that people will only credit God for the example of his power in and through our lives. That is what's to be going on. 
The word praise appears 11 times in the New Testament. Seven of the 11 refer to God or the gospel. The idea is one of expressing admiration of God, not man. Even as we see in verse 6 to the Father and 12 to the Son, 14 to the Holy Spirit. Then you have the word glory, doxa. In our context, it has the sense of splendor, brightness that belongs only to God. The Hebrew word for glory, in its root word, has the idea of heaviness, of greater dignity and honor. In other words, the glory, the heaviness, if when I grew up, was growing up in Mexico and we'd go to the market and they, 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 they put balances on their weights, you know, they put this here, this here, and it balances out. And when something's heavier, it goes like that. Well, that's the idea of God's glory. We get ad- admired and impressed with men, but when you put the glory of God, it's heavy. It outweighs anything. There's nothing that equates to it. That's the idea in the Hebrew. The Greek word has the similar idea of the supreme magnificence and the excellent splendor for which Jesus is praised for as a result of salvation. The praiseful worship over the glory is over the magnanimous splendor of Jesus as he works in the life of a believer to be Christ-like. It's an incredible thing when you and I yield to the Lord and we are so transformed, we are so different than we were before that when someone hasn't seen us since then, they're shocked. Because there's such a radical change. We're much like the moon in this sense. The moon has no light in and of itself, as you know. All the light that is radiated from the moon comes directly from the sun. The moon is a reflector, not a light generator. That glory that people see is not of our own. Therefore, we should not receive the glory, nor should we claim the glory. But they should be in awe of the one who has transformed us. The people of our day are so lost in sin and the hopeless hope in man. Sin has enslaved them. We used to be there, but the world has gotten much more corrupt, perverse, and evil since I grew up in the 60s. And I was born again in 1973. That's a long time ago. The culture has entitled them. The world has lied to them and indoctrinated them. 
Jesus has the same solution for every generation. Listen to him. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and applaud you. No. And glorify your Father in heaven. Same solution for every generation. Regardless of the nation, regardless of the culture, regardless of the year, doesn't matter. The times that we are um, living in are very evil days and there is much deception and confusion about what a Christian is and Christianity. False teachings permeate the church. False teachers are tolerated and praised. False doctrine is welcomed and embraced. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your, here it is, conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation, when by your example, by your conduct, God nails them and gives them an opportunity to repent. Ooh. The Lord Jesus Christ has equipped us for all things. Peter puts it this way. Verse 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. I've given it to you once. I'm going to give it to you again. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That means I'm equipped for all my life. Through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be a partaker of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We're equipped, a new nature, able to obey God and please God. Paul puts it this way, For it is the God who commended light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence and the power may be of God and not of ourselves. Listen to Paul again, and I'll close with this. 
but of him. You are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. No one else. There is so much glorying today in ourselves, in the church. All the glory is to be to Him. The sole expectation is that Jesus be exalted. Wow. The third blessing associated with Jesus by the doctrine of redemption is that our lives can bring Him praise. Characterized by these three things. The single preparation needed has been allotted. The sovereign determination is so that we be yielded. And the sole expectation is that Jesus be exalted. Can't get any simpler than that. <laughs> Ephesians is a great, great epistle. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love. Lord, thank you for your patience and mercy and love for us, Lord. Thank you for your word that we can study, and we pray that we would continue to yield ourselves to you, that you would increase and we would decrease, Lord. Help us in the areas of our weaknesses, that we would not trust in ourselves, but look to you, Lord. As you're praying, if, um, if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved and to repent of your sins. If you believe Jesus is God who became man and that He died for your sins, then you can call upon Him. He says He will forgive you. He will make a new creature of you and He will give to you eternal life. That's by grace through faith, not because we deserve it, but simply because He loves you. If you... Want to accept them. You want to repent. Maybe you're over the internet. This is your prayer to Him right where you sit. If you mean it, He will save you. If you don't, you'll remain lost. But the choice is yours. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.